You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Well, we've been looking at a heavenly perspective in Philippians chapter 3. As we've been going through, we get to the end of the chapter, and probably the most explicit statement of a heavenly perspective is in Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not the first time that this glance toward heaven or this heavenly mindedness has come up in the book of Philippians. And I just want to, by way of a quick review, remind you that this has been sort of woven throughout the book. You see it in, for instance, chapter 1, verse 21. Remember that? We identified that verse as the key verse. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. There you have the Apostle Paul looking heavenward and saying, I would rather depart and be with Christ because that's far better. And there his desire was to be with Christ, to know Christ fully, to be fully Christ-like, and to finally be wrapped up and have that culmination and that consummation of all of his hope and his anticipation and his salvation. So there we have him looking heavenward. Then we see it again in chapter 1, verse 27, where he says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And the word conduct there means to live as a citizen, live in keeping with one's citizenship. And the Apostle Paul is alluding there to the reality he expresses in chapter 3, verse 20, that our citizenship is in heaven. And back in chapter 1, you sort of get this glimpse toward that citizenship, and he's saying, We ought to conduct ourselves in light of heaven. Then we see the heavenward glance and the heavenward perspective in chapter 2 where he reminds us of that ultimate self-sacrificing humility demonstrated by the Lord Jesus who did not, who, who can look out not for his own interest but also for the interests of others and who stepped down from heaven and came here. And then of course you see it in chapter 2 verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then we see it in chapter 3, verse 10, where the Apostle Paul says, I want to know Christ and I want to know the power of his resurrection and be conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. And so there you have the Apostle Paul looking toward heaven again. And then, of course, it finds its culmination or its consummation in chapter 3, verse 20, where Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. So all the way through the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul has been alluding to heaven, directing his thoughts toward heaven, and his mind has really had a heavenward focus. Which might, by the way, explain why it is we see in the book of Philippians this constant repetition of the theme of joy and rejoicing. You notice that in Philippians? the more really in reality, the more our minds are fixated with what goes on here and what is happening here, the more that just sucks the joy out of your life. I mean, really, if all you do is watch the news and all you do is pay attention to what's going on in the political realm and all you do is just get sucked in with the muck and the mess and all the garbage that's going on, there's no more joy-stealing activity for me than sitting down and watching all of that displayed before my eyes. But when I fix my thoughts heavenward, the joy returns and the rejoicing returns. So we looked last week, because we left off last week on a bit of a sort of anticipatory note. We are awaiting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are waiting for something to happen, someone to come. And when He comes back, verse 21 is going to happen. 
He will transform this body in its vile or humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. By the exertion of the power that He has, even to subject all things to Himself. So that's what we're waiting for. And that brings us to the subject of resurrection. Now we already saw Paul in chapter 3, up in verse 10 and 11, allude to this physical resurrection. That I may attain, Paul says, I want to know Christ, in order that I may attain to the ekanastasis, the out-resurrection, or the resurrection from out of the dead. A physical, bodily resurrection. Paul wanted to participate in that. That was what his hope was. Now I told you up in chapter 3, verse 11, 10 and 11, this was only a couple weeks ago, that I would reserve comment or explanation of what this bodily resurrection was until we got down to where it's explained in greater detail in verse 21. And there we have it. When he comes back, he is going to transform the body of my humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. And that introduces us to the subject of the bodily resurrection and the centrality of resurrection to the Christian faith. So today we're going to talk about that. It's such a massive subject that I want to take a moment and just step back by way of introduction and sort of introduce you to the the subject itself, just the general teaching in the Bible on the subject of resurrection. And then we'll jump back into Philippians 3, verse 21, and we'll see what Paul tells us about it. So here we are, just by way of introduction, a general explanation of the doctrine of resurrection itself in the Scripture. The first thing I want you to understand is that resurrection is not a uniquely Pauline idea. That's to say that Paul didn't create this out of thin air. It's not something that Paul introduces to us for the first time in 1 Corinthians 15. This is something that was expected and looked forward to all the way back in the Old Testament and even in the earliest book of the Bible ever written, the very first book of the Bible ever written, the earliest revelation of God mentions the bodily resurrection. Do you know what the first book of the Bible written was? Some of you might tend to think it was Genesis because Genesis describes beginnings, but Adam didn't write Genesis. It's not a real-time account of what was going on. It is Moses describing what happened. The earliest book and the first book of the Bible written was the book of Job. Some scholars date Job pre-flood, meaning that Noah would have brought Job across the ark with him. Now, I think that's an interesting speculation, and they argue from the culture and the timing and some of the indications in Job, the mention of the different animals like Leviathan that Job saw, that they argue that Job was pre-flood. Now, I'm not going to start a new denomination over this. I think it's rather interesting. But I think that the latest you can date Job is the time of Abraham. Certainly before Abraham, probably right after the flood, possibly before the flood, but there in the very earliest book of the Old Testament, you have the bodily resurrection described in Job chapter 19. Now, Job didn't have all of the questions of life answered. There were certain things that Job didn't know. But he does say, I know this, Job 19, verse 25 and 27, As for me, listen to this, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last He will take His stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. Here's what Job says, this I know. My Redeemer lives, and He will someday take His stand on this earth. And even though my flesh is destroyed, that's to say I'm going to die, my body's going to be buried, eaten by worms, probably go into the elements, even though my flesh may be destroyed, destroyed, this I know. I will see my Redeemer with my eyes, my very own eyes. I will behold Him on this earth. 
and I will see Him and not another. What did Job look forward to? A bodily resurrection. He says, even though this flesh may be destroyed, I'm going to behold my God with my very own eyes. That's the earliest indication of the doctrine of bodily resurrection. You see it again in Isaiah, chapter 26, verse 19. Isaiah says, Your dead will live, their corpses will rise, you who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. You see it in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Somebody asked me about that passage last week. They came up and said, what is Daniel chapter 12? Is that describing the resurrection that Paul describes in Philippians 3, verse 21? And the answer to it is yes. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Now this introduces us to something a little new that we didn't get in Job and we didn't get in Isaiah, but listen to what Daniel says. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to everlasting disgrace and everlasting contempt. Now there's something introduced there in Daniel that we didn't see in Job and Isaiah. Did you catch what it is? There are some who will be resurrected to everlasting life. There are others who will be resurrected to everlasting contempt and damnation. There are two resurrections. Everybody, believer and unbeliever, participates in bodily resurrection at the end of time. Everybody. Some to everlasting life. Others to everlasting damnation, everlasting contempt, everlasting shame, and everlasting ruin. So what was the Old Testament hope? Did the saints of the Old Testament, Adam and David and Abraham and and, uh, Noah and those men, Job, did they look forward to just dying and going to be in some some nether region world and some spiritual sort of bliss where you're half asleep and half awake? Is that what they expected? No, you know what they expected? Job said, I know I'll see my Redeemer with my very eyes. Even though this flesh may be destroyed, I will behold Him. Their hope was that they would stand on the earth and live forever in a body, dwelling with God and with the people of God in perfection and in perfect righteousness. That was their hope. That is what they looked forward to. That is what they expected. They didn't expect to just die and be abandoned to Sheol. David says in Psalm 16, I know that my flesh will dwell securely because he will not abandon my soul to the grave. David knew he would rise again. David knew he would be resurrected. That's what the Old Testament saints hoped for. Isn't there something in you that wants to live forever? Isn't there something in you that wants to live forever? There's something in you that just... You don't want to be without your body, do you? Do you want to be naked for all of eternity? I don't. I don't want to be a disembodied spirit for all of eternity. I am so tied up with this body and things physical that it is difficult really for us to imagine being happy in a disembodied state apart from my body. My desire is to live in righteousness, in perfection and in holiness with God in paradise, a physical paradise for all of eternity. That's my desire. You know why that's my desire? Because that is why God created us and that is what He has created us for. He is not just going to redeem our soul and our spirit. He is going to redeem our bodies and we get a new body and a new heavens and a new earth. That was the hope of the Old Testament saints. And Jesus in John chapter 5 described that resurrection. Jesus said, For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. This is an amazing statement, which is why Jesus says, don't be surprised at this. Do not marvel at this. 
An hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice, that is Jesus' voice, the Son of Man's voice, and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. How many resurrections? Two resurrections. A resurrection to life and a resurrection to judgment. A resurrection to eternal bliss and a resurrection to eternal damnation. Jesus said all men get a body. All men will be raised. Paul in Acts chapter 24, standing before Felix, says, I cherish the same hope that these men, speaking of the Pharisees, I cherish the same hope that these men have, that there shall be a resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous, of the just and the unjust. How many resurrections? Two resurrections. The righteous and the wicked. Both resurrected. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 just describes our resurrection. We will be transformed, the body of our humble state, into conformity with the body of His glory. Let me give you two more quick references. Romans chapter 8 where Paul says, we groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the redemption of our body. Not liberation from our body, the redemption of our body. We long that this mortal might put on immortality, that this perishable might put on the imperishable, that this corruptible would come become incorruptible. That's our desire. That's our long longing. That's why we groan. I don't want to be liberated from my body for all of eternity. I want my body to be resurrected and be united with my body and never die. That's my desire. That was the expectation of the Old Testament saints. That's what Jesus promised would happen. That's what Paul talked about in Acts chapter 24. And of course, no mention of the resurrection or no overview of the resurrection would be complete without speaking about 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the resurrection chapter. Now in that chapter, the Apostle Paul not only argues for the literal, bodily, historical resurrection of Jesus Christ, but he argues that because Jesus Christ is risen, we also will get a new body. Most of the questions that you and I have about the nature of our body and what that's going to look like could be answered if you just read and spent some time studying 1 Corinthians 15. That's where Paul writes, I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. That's the resurrection. It's the resurrection of the just, imperishable, uncorruptible. This is the certain hope that we have, that we will be raised. Now, I do have to say a word about the timing. Because most of you, I would imagine if I did a question and answer after this, most of you, the questions that I would get would have to do with something like this. Well, when is this going to happen? Has it already happened? Is it something that's going to happen? Is it going to happen soon? Is it going to happen um, way at the end of time? Is it everybody together? What's the chronology? What's the order of events in which all of this resurrection stuff is going to cash out? Now, you'll notice that Philippians 3, verse 21, doesn't say anything about chronology. So I'm not going to spend a tremendous amount of time on this because I don't want to be flipping back and forth to all these different passages and pages trying to present my case and prove my point on this. But I'm, going to, I'm just going to quickly describe how I see all of this cashing out. Now, say at the beginning, I am what theologians call, and what I would call, and what most of you would call, a pre-millennialist. A pre-millennialist. I'm not an amillennialist. I'm not a post-millennialist. And this has to do with the doctrines of eschatology. That is your view of the end times and how the end times are going to sort of cash out. There are post-millennialists, amillennialists, and pre-millennialists. I'm a pre-millennialist, which means that I believe there will be a literal, physical return of Jesus Christ to this earth to rule in a kingdom, sit on David's throne, fulfill all the Old Testament prophecies concerning the land, concerning the blessings to the nation of Israel, concerning the blessings of 
of, uh, to the resurrected Old Testament saints, all of that will happen pre, that is before, the millennium, which is the thousand year reign of Christ described in Revelation chapter 20. Now I'm not an amillennialist, and that's somebody who believes that there is going to be no literal physical resurrection of Jesus, uh, sorry, no literal physical return of Jesus Christ and rule on this earth. And I'm not a post-millennialist, somebody who believes that we're in the millennium now and that Satan is bound and that our job is to Christianize the world in order to usher in the return of Jesus Christ. Now, good and well-meaning Christians differ on these issues of eschatology. I am a premillennialist, not a post-millennialist, not an amillennialist. Now, I understand a couple of things. Some of you have no idea what I just said. Others of you are sitting here and you're not premillennialists. Some of you heard me describe my positions. That's what I believe. Others are sitting here. You're not premillennialists. You might be an amillennialist or a postmillennialist. And you're saying to yourself, Jim, I hate your eschatology. I don't agree with it and I don't like it. I hate your eschatology. To which I would say, thank you for being honest. Appreciate that. Truth be told, I'm not real crazy about yours either. But that's what we call common ground. We can both agree that we don't like each other's eschatology, so we have common ground. But I'll love you, and you love me, and listen, if I'm wrong on this, then we'll sit down in heaven with a cup of coffee, and you can show me where I got this wrong. And if you're wrong on this, then we'll sit down in heaven with a cup of coffee, and I'll show you where you got it wrong. And we'll just agree to love each other in the meantime. Now, I might be wrong about the timing of these events. I might be. That's a possibility. I don't think I am. If I thought I was wrong, I would change my opinion so that I thought I was right. How many people say, I think I'm wrong on this? Not many people say that. You, Of course, even if you disagree with me, you think you're right, and I think I'm right. So we can both be genuine and say we disagree, we both think that we're right. I might be wrong. There is that possibility. I think it's a very slim possibility, but it is a seriously a possibility. I can be wrong about a lot of things. But here's how I see it cashing out as far as chronology goes. The next event on God's calendar is the return of Jesus Christ for His church. He is going to come back and He is going to initiate the next phase of what is called the first resurrection. The first resurrection, as I see it, takes place in three different times and in three different events. Jesus Christ Himself participated in the first resurrection, which is the resurrection to life. He is the first fruits of that. And the fact that He is risen guarantees that those who place their faith in Him will also participate in the first resurrection. So there are only how many resurrections? Two resurrections. A resurrection to life and a resurrection to damnation. The resurrection to life was initiated by Jesus Christ. The next event on God's calendar is His return for His church, at which time, though the dead in Christ, that's not Old Testament saints because they're never called the dead in Christ, the uh, the dead in Christ, that is the church and those who have died before us, will be raised and they will receive their resurrection bodies. Then we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord We will put on the immortal, we will put on the imperishable, we will put on the incorruptible, and we will be changed in the twinkling of an eye, and we will be caught up together with the Lord, with them, to meet the Lord in the air, and we will forever be with the Lord. Sometime after that, I think probably most likely immediately following that event, there begins a time that is called the time of Jacob's trouble, in which God will pour out His wrath upon the earth. I think it lasts for at least seven years. During that period of time, God will be judging His enemies here. There will be people who will get saved. At the end of that period of time, Jesus Christ will come back here in flaming fire with His angels, with His saints, and He will mete out vengeance and He will tread the winepress of the wrath of Almighty God, destroy all of His enemies, destroy all of the kingdoms, and He will set up that kingdom that was promised to David 
that the Old Testament saints longed for, that the entire Old Testament predicted, anticipates, and waits for, He will set it up and He will rule on the throne of David for a thousand years. And it will be a rule of a rod of iron in complete justice, complete righteousness, and all of the resurrected saints, you and I, who either were transformed or were resurrected out of the ground, will share in that kingdom. Prior to that 1,000 year reign, there will be the last phase of this resurrection of the just, which is the resurrection of all the Old Testament saints. Joseph and David and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Daniel and Job, all of them will be resurrected at the beginning. This is still the resurrection of life in order that they may enter into the blessings that they were promised, that they looked for, but they never received. And where was I? I was at the beginning of the thousand year reign. They will enter into all of those promised blessing, and that is the resurrection to life. That is when Job will see his Redeemer take his stand on the earth with his very eyes. Job knew that. I know that my Redeemer lives and He will take His stand on the earth and I will see Him with my eyes. That's the beginning of that period of time. At the end of that thousand years, there will be a second resurrection with death and Hades and the sea and the earth and everything will give up the dead and all of the wicked will be resurrected, receive their bodies, they will stand before the great white throne, they will be judged according to their deeds and then they will be sentenced to eternal death in eternal damnation because they have sinned against God, rejected a sacrifice, they are enemies of the cross of Christ, they are enemies of God, and they will receive eternal damnation in the body. That's how I see it cashing out. That's a thousand and some odd years, at least seven, in a brief history. Now, all of that was introduction to this subject of resurrection. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Some of you are chuckling. The funniest part about that is that I am serious. That was all just introduction. We are, by the way, going to finish Philippians chapter 3 today. So I promise you that. Um, that makes us three-quarters of the way through the book of Philippians. Started preaching Philippians. This is just a, a little note. One year ago, July 1st. So in a year's time, we went three-quarters of the way through this book, which you can see already, we are well surpassing the rate at which we went through Acts. After a year, we were nowhere near three-quarters of the way through the book of Acts. So we are speeding up quite a bit to go through Philippians. We're going to finish chapter 3. So now, focus now on chapter 3, verse 21. So we've answered the issue of the Old Testament hope, and everything anticipates towards this. And now Paul says in Philippians 3.21, when Christ comes back, and this is the next event, I believe, on God's chronological calendar, He will transform, that word means to change, or to change the form of, He will transform the body of this the King James says vile estate. The rest of your translations probably say either humble or lowly estate. And Paul is talking about our present body. Now, if you have the King James and it says vile, please keep in mind that vile back in 1611 simply meant humble or lowly. It didn't mean disgusting. Even though maybe some of you may think I have a vile body. Join the club. We do have disgusting bodies, but that's not the sense in which Paul is talking here. He simply means humble or lowly. Now, what makes your body, as it is now, humble or lowly? It's subject to death. Do you realize that even as you sit right here, right now, that your cells are rotting away? Do you know that? You are weaker right now than you were when you walked into this building. Imperceptibly so. You can't see how much weaker you are. But you are weaker nonetheless. Because you're closer to death. And this humble body that you now have is subject to disease and illness and sickness and danger 
and infection and sin and corruption and depravity. And listen, eventually it must give way to death. It has to die. It has to either die or it has to be instantly transformed in the twinkling of an eye to become an immortal body. This body cannot inherit the kingdom of God because this body cannot live forever. Even in a perfect estate, this body cannot live forever. This body is racked with sin. My nature is still sinful. My body is still sinful. My desires are still sinful. My motives are still sinful. I will be a disease-filled, death-ridden corpse, stinking and rotting right before your eyes until the day that the Lord comes or until the day that I die. It must be so. It has to happen that way. So your body is a lowly, humble body. Paul says that Jesus Christ Himself is going to transform it, change it, into conformity with the body of what? His glory. Now that doesn't mean that you're going to look exactly like Jesus when you're resurrected or transformed, but it does mean that you will be like Him or in conformity to Him in nature and in kind. The body that we are going to get is going to be the same body that Jesus had, the same type of body, kind of body that Jesus had when He rose from the dead. He did not simply resurrect in a different body. God didn't create him for him a different body that was and leave the old one to simply rot in the tomb. That body in which Jesus lived his 33 years of life, that body was transformed and became a glorious body. And it's the body that he has even right now. Do you understand that? That Jesus Christ is in heaven in a physical body right now. The same body that he spent 40 days with here on earth walking around with the disciples, teaching them things concerning the kingdom of God. When He ascended, He didn't leave His body behind, but it was a glorious body. So what will my new body be like? What will your new body be like? It will be glorious. It will be eternal. See, right now my spirit soul, I believe those are the same thing, my spirit soul, the immaterial part of me, is immortal. It will never die. It cannot ever die. It it will live on for eternity because it is immortal. But I have a problem, and that is that I don't have a tent or a vessel in which that spirit soul can live, which is eternal. So I need to have an eternal body, and a body that is glorious. A body that is free from death and disease and illness and sickness and depravity and corruption and and rotting and all of those other things that are characteristic of our vile body. I have to have a body that is eternal. So the body that I'm going to get and the body that you're going to get is going to be a glorified body. It will be just like Jesus' body. So in heaven... Age after age after age will come washing in upon you. 10,000 years times 10,000 years, and your body will never die. Your body will never die. It will never be subject to corruption, to disease, to illness, or to death. And no matter how many countless ages come and go, death will never overtake us again because death will be no more. It's going to be a glorious body. Further, it's going to be a physical body. Was the, Jesus, was the body that Jesus got a physical body? Yeah, it was. It wasn't something that just looked physical. It's not that he walked around and, and peered in images trying to deceive people into thinking that he had a body when he didn't. He actually had a body, and it's a physical body. Furthermore, not only was his body a physical body, but Revelation chapter 20 and 21 promises us that our eternity is going to be a physical eternity. That God is going to redeem not only our bodies, we're going to get all new bodies, but also we're going to spend eternity in a new heavens and a new earth. 
in which there are streets and roads and walls and buildings and mansions and commerce and trade and occupation and people and angels and creatures and animals and fruit and coffee. You can't imagine paradise without coffee. That's not, uh, that's not a carte blank way of saying that anything you can imagine in paradise is going to be there. But why wouldn't there be coffee plants in heaven? Is there something sinful about coffee? If there is, stop drinking it. If they're not, if there's not, then why wouldn't it be in heaven? And fruit. We're going to eat fruit. And meals. We're going to have physical bodies. Part of longing after heaven is the understanding that it is a physical place. It is not a disembodied state. It is just as, it's more physical than what we have around us. More so. Because it's eternal. And it cannot be corrupted. It will never perish. It can never be destroyed or ruined. Nothing bad can ever happen to it. Sin can never corrupt it. It's a physical place. You know why I long for heaven? Because I want to walk up with absolutely no ill motive or ill thought in my mind and be able to hug a brother or sister in the Lord. I want to walk up and wrap my arms around the feet of my Savior. I can't do that if it's just a another world, some spiritual disembodied state. There will be a new heavens. There will be a new earth. God is going to resurrect this entire creation and He is going to restore it to a state that makes the Garden of Eden look like nothing. And we will live forever and dwell with God forever in that heaven. It's different than the heaven that exists now, but we will dwell with God there forever and ever and ever in physical bodies in a physical environment. And everything around us will be physical. Now, if you have a hard time stomaching that, it's probably because you've bought into some form of Platonism which thinks that the body and all material is inherently evil. And that if it's physical, it must not be spiritual. That's not true. The body is good. Creation is good. Matter is good. It's sin that's corrupted all of these things. But God will resurrect it and restore all of it. He will transform the body of this humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. Now, how is He going to do this? I mean, we're talking about billions of resurrections, aren't we? What do you do with all the saints who have been devoured and eaten, whose bodies have rotted, who have been blown to bits, burned at the stake, devoured by predators? What about them? There are saints who have died and gone on whose there are no remains to their body, not even a bone fragment. How is the Lord going to resurrect those people? How is He going to do that? Well, see, once you admit that God is involved in it and that it takes a miracle, then, of course, you realize it's simply the exertion of the power. That's what Paul says at the end of chapter 3, verse 21, almost as if he anticipates the the question, it's by the exertion of the power that he has. He doesn't have to borrow this power. He has it. And he's simply going to work with that power. And he is going to, Jesus said, speak the words, and all of the dead will hear his voice, and there will be a resurrection, some to life and some to damnation. He is simply going to speak the words and all of the elements will reassemble and you will have your body and your soul and spirit will be reunited with your body. It's the Son of God who spoke the worlds into existence. That's a few billion resurrections. This is child's play. There's no problem with this. He's simply going to say it and it's going to happen. Either Jesus was telling the truth or He was lying. But that's what's going to happen. Simply by the exertion of the power that he has, what kind of power? The power to subject all things to himself. 
Now, my body is going to look, I think, somewhat like this body, but much better. Because you may be asking, what's the relationship between the body in which I now live and the body that I will someday have? Is there a relationship to the two? Yes, there is. 1 Corinthians 15 says there's a relationship to this body. This body is related to my next body just as a seed is related to the plant that comes from the seed. There is a one-to-one correspondence so that the seed that is planted is the plant that is produced. You don't plant a pea seed and get a corn stalk. You plant a pea seed and you get a pea plant. And all the genetic information for the pea plant is in the pea seed. And there's a correspondence between the pea seed and the pea plant. And the pea plant is a much more glorious and perfective and active and living form than the pea seed. It's the same thing with our bodies. When our bodies... I hope I just got through all of that without making any mistakes because some of you are laughing. I have no idea what I may have said. Our bodies are going to... New bodies are going to correspond to this body in the same way. When this body goes into the ground, it will be planted as it were. But there will be a resemblance between this body and my new body. I think I'm going to look a lot different. Similar but different. I I think I'm going to look better. Why do I say that? Because I think God is too kind to do this to me twice. So I think I'm going to look much better resurrected than I am here. We're going to be similar, just as Jesus' appearance was recognizable, but glorified without any imperfections whatsoever. Now the bulk of the New Testament describes the resurrection of the just. Not a lot of time is spent describing the resurrection of the unjust or the wicked. But I've got to, having painted a picture for you of what heaven is like, I do have to tell you there is a flip side to this. There is also a resurrection to judgment, a resurrection to damnation. Just as you can flesh out in your minds what the implications of heaven are in all of its physicalness and us having a physical body, you must also flesh out in your mind what it means when Jesus said, don't fear him who can kill the body, but fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Jesus said it's better to cut off your hand and go to heaven with one hand than to go to hell with two hands in your body. Why? Because hell is going to be filled with people who have what? Bodies. If hell was just a disembodied state where spirits are tortured, then the Bible would not use the term resurrection to describe those going to damnation just as it does to describe those going to eternal life. Listen, everybody gets their body back. Everybody. Spurgeon described what it means that those in hell will receive a body. I want to read to you what he says. Kind of an extended quote, but follow this for just a second. Spurgeon writes, I actually preached this. There is a real fire in hell. As truly as you have now a real body, a fire exactly like that which we have on earth, in everything except this, that it will not consume, though it will torture you, You have seen the asbestos lying in the fire red hot, but when you take it out, it is unconsumed. So your body will be prepared by God in such a way that it will burn forever without being consumed. It will lie, not as you consider in a metaphorical fire, but in an actual flame. Did our Savior mean fictions when He said that He would cast both body and soul into hell? Thou wilt sleep in the dust a little while, but when thou diest, thy soul will be tormented alone. That will be hell for it. But at the day of judgment, thy body will join thy soul, and then thou wilt have twin hells. Body and soul shall be together, each brimful of pain. Thy soul sweating in its inmost pore drops of blood, and thy body from head to foot suffused with agony. 
conscience, judgment, memory, all tortured, but more, thy head tormented with raking pains, thine eyes starting from their sockets with sights of blood and woe, thy ears tormented with sullen moans and hollow groans and shrieks of tortured souls, thine heart beating high with fever, thy pulse rattling at an enormous rate in agony, thy limbs crackling like the martyrs in the fire and yet unburnt, thyself put in a vessel of hot oil, pained yet coming out undestroyed, all thy veins becoming a road for the hot feet of pain to travel on. Hear me when I say to you who are gratifying your lusts, do you know that those bodies, the lusts of which you gratify here, will be in hell? And that you will have the same lusts in hell that you have here? The debauchee hastes to indulge his body in what he desires. Can he do that in hell? Can he find a place there where he will satisfy his lust and find indulgence for his foul desire? The drunkard here can pour down his throat the intoxicating and deadly draught, but where will he find the liquor to drink in hell when his drunkenness will be as hot upon him as it is here? Aye, where will he find so much as a drop of water to cool his parched tongue? The man who loves gluttony here will be a glutton there, but where will be the food to satisfy him? When he may hold his finger up and see the loaves go away from him and the fruits refuse his grasp. Oh, to have your passions and yet not to satisfy them. To shut a drunkard up in his cell and give him nothing to drink, he would dash himself against the wall to get the liquor, but there is none for him. What wilt thou do in hell, O drunkard, with that thirst in thy throat, and having nothing but flames to swallow, which increase thy woe? And what wilt thou do, O rake, when still thou wouldst be seducing others, but there are none with whom you can sin? Do I speak plainly? Did not Christ do so? If men will sin, they shall find men who are not ashamed to reprove them. Aye, to have a body in hell with all its lusts, but not the power to satisfy them. How horrible that hell will be. But hear me while I affirm again God's truth. I tell thee, sinner, that those eyes that now look on lust shall look on miseries and shall vex and torment thee. Those ears which now thou lendest to hear the song of blasphemy shall hear moans and groans and horrid sounds such as only the damned know. That very throat down which thou pourest drink shall be filled with fire. Those very lips and arms of thine will be tortured all at once. End quote. That's the reality of eternity, friends. For those who have repented of their sin and trusted in Christ, the hope of eternity is a resurrection to life and eternal bliss. And now who can be unmoved by these things? That the reality of eternity with separation from Christ is not an annihilation of existence, but it is age after age with your body and all of its lusts and all of its unredeemed state constantly suffering the wrath of God upon you for your sin. That is a just thing for God to do. It's the right thing for God to do to sinners. I don't want to end on that note because there are children here who might have a hard time sleeping tonight after that. I have a little book here, The Valley of Vision. It's a collection of Puritan prayers and meditations. This is just a... you, you got to get one of these. Read one of these a day. It'll just give you lots to think about. This is how the Puritans prayed. And this is sort of an expression of Philippians 3, 20 and 21 in a Puritan prayer. O Son of God and Son of Man, Thou wast, thou didst... Sorry, I don't speak Puritanese very well. Let me try that again. O Son of God and Son of Man, Thou wast incarnate, didst suffer, rise, ascend for my sake. Thy departure was not a token of separation, but a pledge of return. Thy word, promises, sacraments show thy death until thou come again. 
That day is no horror to me, for thy death has redeemed me. Thy spirit fills me. Thy love animates me, and thy word governs me. I have trusted thee, and thou hast not betrayed my trust. Waited for thee, and not waited in vain. Thou wilt come to raise my body from the dust and reunite it to my soul. By a wonderful work of infinite power and love, greater than that which bounds the ocean's waters, ebbs and flows the tides, keeps the stars in their courses, and gives life to all creatures. This corruptible shall put on incorruption. This mortal immortality, this natural body, a spiritual body, this dishonored body, a glorious body, this weak body, a body of power. I triumph now in thy promises as I shall do in their performance, for the head cannot live if the members are dead. Beyond the grave is resurrection, judgment, acquittal, and dominion. Every event and circumstance of my life will be dealt with. The sins of my youth, my secret sins, the sins of abusing thee, of disobeying thy word, the sins of neglecting ministers' admonitions, the sins of violating my conscience, all will be judged. And after judgment, peace and rest, life and service, employment and enjoyment for thine elect. O God, keep me in this faith and ever looking for Christ's return. Let's pray together. Father, that is our prayer. Keep us in that faith and ever looking for the return of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform us into conformity with the body of His glory. We ask this for His sake and in His name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.